Africa rise and shine Africa zora Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Fiele Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Sudan rival leaders set to meet again this week. South Africa's ruling ANC begins process to formulate elections manifesto and BRICS Young Scientist Forum kicks off in Durban. In economics news, U.S. President Donald Trump criticizes Harley-Davidson. And in sports news, Nigeria and Argentina clash in winner-takes-all World Cup match. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. South Sudanese President Silvakira and opposition leader Rahik Machai have started a new round of peace talks in Khartoum and renewed efforts to peacefully settle the conflict in their country. The talks, which opened on Monday, were held under the auspices of Sudanese President Omar Abashir and in the presence of Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. The Sudanese leader vowed to provide all the necessary facilities to make the talks successful and help reach a peaceful settlement for the crisis in South Sudan. South Sudan has been suffering from a civil war since December 2013 between the forces loyal to Kira and his former Vice President Machar. There has still been no claim of responsibility for a blast that narrowly missed Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa at a pre-election rally. Two people are now known to have died from injuries after the explosion that rocked Saturday's campaign rally in Bulawayo. Mnangagwa escaped unhurt. The BBC's Shinganyoka reports. They're the first reported deaths from Saturday's attack. Two as yet unnamed victims have succumbed to their injuries. State media says a hospital official confirmed the news today. One of the dead is believed to be Vice President Constantino Chiwenga's aide. Eight senior officials suffered non-life-threatening injuries. And while police have yet to confirm the details, sources close to the investigation now believe it was a grenade that was hurled at the country's leaders. President Emerson Nangagwa believes that he was the target. He said the attack will not disrupt July 30th elections. Nigerian police have sent reinforcements to the central state of Plateau after violence between herders and farmers left 86 people dead. There are also indications that more people have lost their lives. Police say a special intervention force has been sent to restore lasting peace in the affected areas. Plateau State on Sunday imposed a dusk-to-dawn curfew in the affected areas as angry youths from ethnic Barom farming communities attacked motorists on the main joss to Abuja Road. Authorities have previously downplayed death tolls and local media on Monday quoted several local Barom groups as saying that more than 100 people were killed. 
Russian President Vladimir Putin and his Turkish counterpart Recep Tayyip Erdogan have discussed the deepening of bilateral ties between the two countries as well as the importance of cooperation on regional issues such as Syria. In a phone call, Putin congratulated Erdogan on his election win in a decisive victory that gives him five more years in office with sweeping new powers. Erdogan polled nearly 53% against rival Muharrem Inje. The BBC's Mark Lowen reports. His absence last night prompted feverish speculation from supporters, desperate for him to challenge the victory President Erdogan claimed, some even asking if he'd been kidnapped. But today, Muharrem Inje, who was seen as the opposition's best ever hope of unseating the president, appeared, telling journalists he accepted the result. He warned, though, of a dangerous one-man rule now that Mr. Erdogan will adopt sweeping new powers, scrapping the post of Prime Minister and choosing most senior judges. The President's victory was crushing, a testament to the reverence he still commands from his Conservative base. And finally, American regulators have approved the first marijuana-derived drug ever to hit the U.S. market, Epidiolex, which will be used to treat two rare and severe forms of childhood epilepsy. Made by the British biopharm company GW Pharmaceuticals, Epidiolex uses purified cannabidiol, or CBD, which is one of more than 80 active compounds in the cannabis sativa plant, also known simply as marijuana. The drug is approved for use against Lennox-Gastaut syndrome and Dravet syndrome in patients two years of age and older. Both forms of epilepsy cause severe seizures. That's the news. Headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Thank you, Anne. It's 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. As the people of South Sudan eagerly wait for rebel leader Rick Machar to meet with President Salva Kiir for the second time, either in Sudan or Nairobi, the country's information minister says his government is not ready to work with Machar. Channel Africa's James Shimangula reports. Drama after drama unfolds in South Sudan less than a week after the country's rebel leader Riek Machar met face-to-face with the President Salva Kiir in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa. The Addis Ababa meeting was the first to be held by the two leaders since Riek Machar fled Juba more than two years ago, fearing that his life was in danger. He crossed into neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo and later left there for Sudan's capital Khartoum, and finally ended up in South Africa, where he has been under what is believed to be house arrest for more than two years. The Addis Ababa meeting was expected to end continued hostilities between the two political and military rivals, but failed to do so because the long-awaited new agreement to replace the one that both signed in 2015 and which has collapsed was never signed. The fact that Machar and Kir had hold a second meeting in Khartoum at a date yet to be announced means that the people of South Sudan, who have been hankering for permanent peace to prevail in their country, will have to wait longer for such peace to come to light. 
As the people of South Sudan wait for peace to come in sight, ethnic fighting that has been raging for five years continues in all parts of the country with the government forces fighting Riek Machara forces and Machara forces battling it out to gain control of more ground in Africa's newest nation. Already diplomatic efforts as well as United Nations push is underway to ensure that the two political and military leaders bury their differences as the first sign of ushering their country into a dawn of permanent peace. Luke Malual is one of rebel leader Riek Machar's spokesmen. He sheds light on what Machara told him. According to the briefings we got from Dr. Riek about the face-to-face meeting, there was no much progress made. And, and that, uh, that is why it has to be continued, probably in Khartoum and maybe in Nairobi. The question that arises and which political and military analysts are pondering over is whether or not there is a high degree of certainty that indeed the two leaders, namely Machar and Kir, will work together in the days to come after ending their long-time enmity. Malwal again. As to whether the two will work together, we are negotiating peace, peace agreement. And, and, and if people are talking that we have to reconcile and uh, make consensus, anything is possible. We cannot rule out, uh, yes, the government can uh, say anything they want to say, but uh, the reality later on will, will prove them wrong or prove them right. With those remarks from Riek Machar, the spokesman, to the extent that the reality will prove them right or wrong, it may be pertinent at this juncture to cross over to South Sudan's Information Minister Michael McQuay to hear what he says about the saga pitting rebel leader Riek Machar against South Sudan leader Salva Kiir. Before McQuay speaks, let's allude to an indication that all is perhaps not well and that the upcoming second face-to-face meeting may be a waste of time. McQuay means no words. He has made tough sentiments implying that, come what may, Juba does not want Riek Machar to be party to the Salva Kiri's administration. The people of South Sudan have had enough experience of Riek Machar. People are not ready, we are not ready to receive Riek Machar again in his position. We are not ready for that. And as such, if Riek Machar wants to be the president of the republic, it is the people of South Sudan who would come and vote him in. The IGAD summit said, and decided that yes, all the provisions that are agreed should be separated from the provisions which are not yet agreed. So they agreed that the parties should continue to eliminate all the agreed issues and thereafter continue to negotiate on all the outstanding issues. That was the tough-talking South Sudan Information Minister, Michael McQuay. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. For feedback and questions relating to our show, tweet us at Channel Africa 1 or at Rise Shine Africa. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.org or WhatsApp on 277-6300-3327. Channel Africa, the African Perspective.
It's 8.11 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. South Africa's governing ANC has started the process of preparing for the national election expected to be held next year. The party has brought together different sectors of the community to give input in the drafting of its manifesto. ANC President Sil Ramaphosa says the manifesto should not only be based on the issues of party card-carrying members, but should speak to all South Africans holistically. Bali Tetani has more. The 2019 national elections will be hotly contested and political parties are gearing themselves for a tough campaign. The country faces a host of challenges such as economic growth and unemployment. And in recent times, the issue of corruption has dominated the news with the state capture scandal. Some of these issues have dampened voters' spirits. ANC President Cyril Ramaphosa says as the party drafts the manifesto, it will need to be appealing to all. Manifesto will set out a vision for our country that must be crafted by the people of this country. It must set out programs to achieve that vision that are rooted in the daily experiences of our people. What they experience, what they go through, the challenges that continue to confront them must finally find their way in the manifesto that will be crafted by the African National Congress. Ramaphosa further says participants must be frank and robust in their discussions with the aim of ensuring that the manifesto meets the expectations of voters. We can no longer count on our people to vote for the ANC because the ANC led the process to liberate our people. We will be asking them to vote for the ANC based on what we have done and also based on what we are going to do for them. The ANC's head for policy, Jeff Khadebe, says the party will also embark on a listening campaign with the aim of soliciting inputs from ordinary South Africans. There is a roadmap of ensuring a thorough consultation with our people, ANC, our alliance partners, broader society and the communities. There will be manifesto forums in all the provinces of South Africa. We're also going to be targeting those municipalities that have been doing good and those that have been doing very badly. The workshop has been divided into nine working groups. The document will be handed to the ANC's National Working Committee, where it will be refined before being sent to party structures. But for the ANC to be able to sell the election document, unity in the party will be crucial. The party has experienced internal divisions that are likely to derail the oldest liberation organization on the continent during the 2019 polls. Ambali Tetani in Pretoria. Going back in time to today, in 1955, the Freedom Charter was adopted in Cliptown, South Africa, bringing the ANC together with Indian, coloured and white organisations. That's today in history, in the year 1955.
Economic freedom fighters leader Julius Malema has reiterated that a majority of Indians in South Africa are racist, despite calls for him to apologize. Malema also remains defiant about his call for people to occupy land. He was addressing his supporters outside the Newcastle Magistrates Court in South Africa's Natal province, who came in numbers to support him as he appeared in court. Fanele Mklongo reports. EFF leader Julius Malema was confident when he appeared in the Newcastle Magistrate Court. Soon after his brief court appearance, he addressed EFF members who were waiting for him outside court. He has reiterated the message that got him into trouble with the law. Malema appeared in court on charges of contravention of the Righteous Assemblies Act. In June 2016, Malema told a gathering in the northern Natal town that white people could not claim ownership of land because it belonged to the country's black majority. He is facing a similar charge in the Bloemfontein Magistrates Court after he told EFF members at the party's 2014 elective conference in Bloemfontein that they should occupy land. Malema wants to challenge the law, arguing that it is an apartheid act which was used to suppress black people. Malema urged his supporters to continue fighting for land. Writers Assemblies Act, it was passed to stop people from occupying land because the Freedom Charter said people must occupy land wherever they choose to do so. It is this act that Mandela was charged with, the one that we are charged with today. Everything we say, people do. We say to our people, occupy the land. People are occupying the land. We have created homes for the homeless masses of our people. Malema did not end them. He continued calling Indians racist and is prepared to challenge his statement in court. We said majority of Indians are racist. They were all screaming. But they are now coming back one by one, sobering up and confirming exactly what the EFF is saying. That indeed, majority of Indians are racist. We did not say all Indians. They take us to court for what we said about Indians and the court wants to silence us. Let them do it. The same way the courts of South Africa suspended revolutionary songs. Let the court do that. And let's see if that is sustainable. Malema also used the occasion to garner support for the upcoming 2019 general elections, promising jobs, proper health care and land. The EFF has vowed to use Malema's next court appearance as an election rally for the province. The Newcastle magistrate postponed the matter until February next year. I'm Fanny Mshongo in Newcastle. Join Channel Africa on the 17th of July as we bring you a live broadcast of the Nelson Mandela Lecture by former U.S. President Barack Obama. Make a date with Channel Africa on the 17th of July as we celebrate Nelson Mandela's centenary birthday. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective.
The BRICS Young Sciences Forum underway in Durban is discussing possible solutions to the water and energy challenges facing member countries Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa. The week-long meeting comes in the run-up to the summit of BRICS, head of state next month. The Scientists Forum is hosting a competition among young innovators for the first time. Dries Libenberg reports. After establishing a platform for young scientists from Brazil, Russia, India, China and South Africa over the past two years, the BRICS Young Scientists Forum will discuss climate change, water and energy issues during their week-long meeting in Durban. The head of India's delegation, Raj Kumar Sharma, says a database of scientists from the various countries and their various fields of study are being drawn up. He says they are also establishing a website where scientists can get in touch with each other. Sharma says by networking at the annual meeting, young scientists can access bigger research grants. So, uh, as a as the outcome of these uh, conclaves, uh, uh, we also announced the call for proposals for bigger projects, BRICS calls for uh, proposals. So, while interacting here, the young scientists, they can interact with them, they can uh, identify their uh, potential collaborator uh, within other countries and during that uh, call for proposals in different uh, collaborative R&D proposals, they can submit the proposals in that. For the first time, the forum is hosting an innovation competition among the five BRICS countries. Sharma says one entry combines a sensor with a cane so that blind people can move around more freely. So uh, he is putting a sensor so that he can move freely. Uh, he call it in our Hindi language like Kala Chashma, the, the black goggle which the, normally the uh, blind people wear. So he will put a sensor in that so that he can move and navigate uh, uh, as a freely and more conveniently. Another first is a discussion on the challenges that female scientists are experiencing. Two of the delegates shared their views. When it comes to the family, the kids, we have to maintain a balance and sometimes have to sacrifice the career or at least some part of a career for that. For you to be able to go forward, you need a whole lot of dedication. Working hours are long and all of that. So coming back to black South African, there's still that um, perception that a woman maybe should work eight to four, and then if you work over the weekends, they, they don't understand that. Neville Aronser from South Africa's Science and Technology Department says the deliberations of the forum will be presented to officials preparing the agenda for next month's summit of BRICS heads of state. I'm Dries Liebenberg in Durban. All eyes will be on Statistics South Africa today as it releases the latest jobs figures. StatSA will release the first quarterly employment statistics, which is a survey of how many jobs were added or lost in various sectors of the economy without taking into account the age of those affected. Economists expect the numbers to show a generally weaker labor market. Tsepomungwai reports. The first quarter employment data will shed the light on the scale of the worsening joblessness in the country. Unemployment is one of South Africa's most stubborn economic problems. 
Despite a slew of policy proposals by government, the majority of South Africa's working population are still without jobs. More concerning is that almost every year, many more young people join the long queues of job seekers. The situation is compounded by lack of skills needed to power the country's advanced economy. Patrick Matidi is a market analyst. Given the backdrop of very poor GDP numbers we saw for Q1 2018 of minus 2.2, uh, one is not very hopeful that uh, there would be an improvement in the jobs numbers that is expected to come through. So we are still expecting a very high unemployment level, uh, still very high unemployment amongst the youth, and we do not be surprised if within that unemployment number we see discouraged job seekers, that number going up, Lastly, because the employment situation is still not that conducive in South Africa. The data will also show that more than 50% of the unemployed are young people. Many continue to roam the streets daily without hope of ever finding a job. The country's high crime rate has been blamed on the large unemployment rate among young people. To remedy the situation, government has invested billions of rent in education but many more are lost in the schooling system or possess skills that are not required. The government needs to uh, like introduce more programs to upskill young people with skills so that they can be employable. More should be done from entrepreneurs, but uh, unfortunately we see, we've been seeing um, inconsistently, particularly amongst black entrepreneurs. I think what has to be changed is the mentality. I mean, if, cause if you're employed mentally, you employed physically. So black people have to use their minds, start their own businesses and all that. First quarter unemployment was unchanged at a high of 26.7%. It's been stuck around 25% for a long time. Market analyst Chris Gilmore says unemployment should have been higher in the current economic environment. That says to me that our unemployment rate, as high as it is, and it's one of the highest anywhere in the world, should be rising even further. But it appears not to be. We seem to be relatively static at around about the 26-27% level. And I've been like that for years and years and years. That's on a narrow basis. Expand that to a broader basis, uh, which includes people who are disillusioned and stop looking for work, it comes to about 38%. If you look at the uh, at youth unemployment, which really is absolutely shocking, you know, over 50%, then you get, a, you get an indication, at least, of how bad the situation is. I am Tepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. The private sector is ready to work with government in bringing the much-needed investment into South Africa. This transpired at the Business Leadership South Africa meeting, where the Presidential Special Envoy for Investment, Pumzile Langeni, addressed the gathering in Durban. ESCOM Board Chairperson Dr. Jabu Mabuza admitted that the wage negotiations at the power utility could have been handled better than the company offering workers 0% increment. The new dawn associated with an improved way of doing things in government and states-owned companies has brought hope for better for the business sector. There's still a long way to get investor confidence into the country, but the business sector shared some of its fears. Business Leadership South Africa Chairman Dr. Jabu Mabuza, who is also the chairman of the ESCOM board, admitted that the wage negotiations at the power utility took off in a wrong footing. The consequence of our pricing has led us come to the situation that very few people are still on our system. We actually have to pay people to come off the grid. 
So the challenge is uh, we don't have all excess capacity, but we have a situation that we have run out of clients that can pay. We have not even started to think about what is the future of an ESCOM should look like, given that you're dealing with a fossil type of energy source. When you deal with the issues of uh, wages, I think we could have handled this issue better as ESCOM. It was perhaps technically wrong to go in the negotiation chamber and say we're going to have a 0% increase. I think that was a bit wrong. And that was the timing. The decision to announce our cost-cutting measures was earlier than the day we walked into the negotiation chamber. The Presidential Special Envoy for Investment, Pumzile Langeni, answered one of the burning issues of land expropriation without compensation. When the President was asked about the land question in Canada, in Toronto in particular, he did give very good context that what's the narrative being provided is that this is an emerging issue. The truth of the matter is this was an issue that was discussed in 1994 but shelved. But of course they do say you can kick the ball down the road. At some point you will find the same ball when you get to that point down the road. So ladies and gentlemen our time has come and I do believe if we just consider the fact that our society is the most unequal in the world then we do need to do something to bring an element of hope and, importantly, parity. The CEO of Business Leadership South Africa, Bonang Mohale, says the business needs to be paying its people a decent living wage in order for them to afford products produced by the companies they work for. One of the key challenges facing boards and governance today is to ensure that corporate decision-making is consistent not only with the expectations, whims, and wishes of the shareholders, but the broader shareholder community, including labor and communities. It must be business that says we want to pay our people decent or living wages so that they can afford the goods and services that we produce. Because if they don't, clearly there's a problem. The business sector is determined to play its role in adhering to President Cyril Ramaphosa's Tumamina call in working towards directing the economy of the country to a stable state. Amnungule Otlope in Durban. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, South Sudanese President Silva Kiir says he hopes his meeting with former rebel leader Rahik Machar in Sudan will bring an immediate end to the devastating war in their country. Mozambique's president has announced several arrests following a wave of deadly attacks blamed on jihadists in the northeastern Cabo Delgado region. And there is still no claim of responsibility following a blast that narrowly missed Zimbabwean President Emerson Mnangagwa at a pre-election rally. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, Anne. It is 8.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Now, as South Africa wraps up Youth Month this week, we speak to the country's National Youth Development Agency, the NYDA, an institution established primarily to tackle challenges that the nation's youth are faced with about the progress they make in addressing these issues. 
For more on this, we are now joined on the line by NYDA spokesperson Lerato Gambo. Lerato, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lillian. Good morning to your listeners. Now, you've obviously welcomed President Cyril Ramaphosa's stance on the removal of experience as a basic requirement for employment. Do you think this will be enough to push the numbers of unemployment down? We are in agreement with, with the president. Uh, part of why we are agreeing with the president is that a serious abnormality that you find in a country that has 60% of its population being young people and having over 400,000 graduates not being in the employ, it's it become a serious issue. So the only way that we can ensure that young people are becoming part of the mainstream economy through youth employment is to ensure that they are in the employment of either government or the private sector. So we are in support of the call by the president and we think that that would reduce unemployment by over 10%. Because how do you explain that 400,000 young people are not working? And part of the things is that we say to them, here is free education, they must go to school. What then becomes the result of free education if after that we say to them we need experience? There are basic uh, vacancies that are existing government, your receptionists, your drivers, and other auxiliary facility uh, uh, vacancies that exist that do not really require experience. So we are in support of the President's court. I'm glad that you mentioned, uh, you know, receptionist jobs, drivers, and and, and those sort of, uh, you know, positions being available within the the government sector. Now, let's speak about the issue here, where I think um, there's a lot of calling out and saying um, young people are graduates, uh, but they are not employable because they don't have experience. But, Lerato, let's look at the, the, the situation here. What are they qualified in? What are the skills that are required in South Africa's uh, business environment, economic environment, um, apart from what you've ju- the positions that you've just mentioned as being possibilities of gaining experience? You know, if we're talking of um, there needs, there's a drive to get uh, uh, more young people in science, more young people in, 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 in uh, economic studies, how do we channel that when um, the majority of uh, those 400, um, graduate, 400,000 graduates, so to speak, are qualified in public relations or communications or those sort of things? How do we work okay. around that problem that the country is sitting with? Okay, perhaps let's dispel the notion that uh, young people out there, they are not qualified or they are not actually meeting the skill set that is required by the economy. You would know the movement that call, is called the Higher A Graduate. Higher A Graduate is one of uh, the movements that exists today with young people holding every street corner and every robot of the city centers, holding a card saying, I have a mechanical engineering degree, I am a quantity surveyor, I did conveyancing, I did law, I did this, and I'm not employed. So it becomes untrue to say that they are not meeting the skill set required by the economy. So we are saying we still have engineers that are out there, but we are saying to them the skills that are required is engineering, ICT, agriculture, and all that. But they remain with those skills at home. So that's why we are saying experience should fall, and therefore young people should be incorporated into the mainstream economy through youth employment. And also, Lulu, I think what we must also discuss is that the private sector should play its role as well. We do not have a situation where government is the only employer when actually the private sector is making more profits and taking them abroad. So I'm thinking that uh, let's agree with the president because it was the NYDA to first call for the scrapping of experience. And the president hasn't realized that this is it's actually a scientific issue. If you have 400,000 uh, graduates who are not working, who've got the, the, the necessary skills that will require the economy, why then don't you put them in the employ of the country? So I think when experience falls, 
uh, would be able to move forward because uh, we can't have a situation where young people are idling outside and they become a parent to government. What would then happen? We would have a South African spring where young people now rise against the state because they are not employed. Because if you check and follow uh, history, you realize that all revolutions were led by young people. And an angry youth, it's actually a hungry youth is an angry youth. And therefore, we do not want to, to have that situation in the country. Lerato, we all saw um, the, the CEO of the NYDA, I think Sfisom Tweni, speaking about that at the Youth, uh, youth uh, Day youth day celebrations in, in uh, Soweto. And in terms of that, what's been the reaction from the private sector, as you mentioned, the fact that the private sector must play a bigger role in ensuring that uh, there are jobs that are, uh, uh, you know, uh, out there and uh, young people uh, should be employed in the private sector, not only in government. What has been the reaction from the private sector with regards to this call by uh, President Sil Ramaphosa and the NYDA? Look, uh, the, the president has made sure that the uh, private sector moved considerably towards youth, uh, uh, employment. Uh, you know that the president has established the youth employment uh, uh, service, the YES program or the YES initiative. Uh, so it then shows that at least there's, a, there's, a, there's an encouraging move by the private sector. But critical is to say that we have extended an olive branch as the NYT to say that there's areas where we can partner with the private sector. You'd know that uh, our grant funding program is one of the successful uh, uh, grant programs that we have. We are calling on the private sector to assist us. Uh, for example, the NYTA through the new board led by CISOM uh, training. We have said that we are having a youth fund. That is a fund that would ensure that we fund entrepreneurs that fall above the scale of the money that we offer. You know that our grants are to give uh, young entrepreneurs up to 200000 and those who are in ICT and agriculture are 250000 But what if happens when a young entrepreneur requires $5 million? Our partnership with CIFA and IDC kicks in. But what if there's more uh, capital that is required? It therefore says the private sector must come in, put this money in the youth fund led by the NYT, but also we do have a skills fund. Uh, so they must also put money in the skills fund because our national savings program it's one of the programs that want to bridge the gap between employment and unemployment. Because young people, after getting uh, certified, they then need to be employed. So private sector must, must really play a bigger role in, in all this. Yes, we agree that the Youth Employment Service Initiative has started, but we must take it beyond the Youth Program and do more in terms of unemployment. Now, as a mandate of uh, the National Youth Development Agency, are you meeting... Um, you know, your, your mandate, uh, uh, just looking at uh, young people, unemployed people, is are your programs doing enough? Are your programs a solution in terms of dealing with uh, some of the problems economically that we're facing as young people in the country? Yes, uh, we are actually doing enough. Perhaps what I should say is that uh, in the last financial year, uh, we have uh, approximately 700 youth enterprises that received the grant. And that has created about 3,700 jobs. Uh, about 63,000 young people uh, established and starting entrepreneurs were supported through our business development phases. And also uh, 981,000 young people were supported through our career guidance program. And we've got about uh, 113.4 million of young people who were supported by the jobs program. Because we remember that the issue of uploading your CV into the NYJ program, it was in fact our, our, our program. The Yes Initiative comes following the program that already exists in the NYTA, where we say young people who need to be in the employment, they must upload their CV. So the NYTA has, has, has did very well. But we must say, Lulu, that the issue has always been a budget. Because we are saying if government is allocating $400 million, uh, to to the NYTA and the, and the NYTA has to 
development of over 60% of the population. It therefore says government is spending 20 rand per young person. So if 400 million is not enough. And that's why we've always said that we are lobbying for more money from government and calling on the private sector to assist in terms of ensuring that the NYTA budget uh, is increased and, and NYTA can deliver more services to young people. Now, what can be done, Lerato, to increase um, youth representation across all government departments? Look, uh, on, on the 27th, Lulu, we are, we are releasing what we call the status of youth reports. Surely we would have seen uh, the, the statistics that have gone out uh, by the Statistics South Africa. But we have had a partner with the University of Johannesburg to say that youth development in the country is quite sporadic. There's no systematic way, there's no channel way of dealing with youth development. We don't have youth development research institutes. So this institute that we established uh, with the University of Johannesburg will release a report. And after releasing this report, what we are calling for is that the Department of Planning, Monitoring and Evaluation under Dr. Nkosa Nakaminizuma must then be able to say these are the departments that have been able to move considerably in terms of uh, implementing the national youth policy, uh, implementing the youth employment accord, and many other uh, youth-related policies. Because what we see in government is that not everyone is doing what is supposed to be done. Every department has a youth directorate. But today, they cannot really prove to say this is what has been done, this is the mandate of the allocation. So we are calling on the Department of Labor monitoring that, because our role is to remember that is to mainstream youth development across all sectors of society. But we remember that we, our accounting authority is the DPME. So the DPME must then call on everybody to say that can you give an account of what we have done. Because really, if uh, something happens that relates to the youth and the youth development agency is not considered, it's a problem for us. Lerato, I'm just going to just uh, shift a bit in terms of uh, what we're discussing and focus more on young women and uh, the problem of violence against young women in South Africa. The scourge, we've seen an uprise of, uh, you know, young women being uh, killed by their partners. And uh, these are young men who, who are supposedly in love with these women. Do you, as the NYDA, um, have any programs aimed at conscientizing young men on the scourge and in terms of dealing with uh, how to, how to, or or facing or how to deal with a problem as such in in, in our country? No, thanks. That's quite a great question. What the NYDA is doing in relating to femicide and and violence facing young women and, and, and and, and particularly those that are adversities. What we have done through the office of the deputy chairperson, we've started a program of, of dialogues, especially focusing on young men, adversities, because you remember there are cases, recent cases of, of, of young, uh, young men killing uh, women, adversities and all those things, but also the societal problem. What we have said as the NYK is that we would start a process of a dialogue, but like we are saying, the same way we are discouraging that youth months must be celebrated with only youth summit, but to practical actions. We are saying that as we have dialogues, we then have to have a concrete problem. Everyone, you see, what we think the most is that partnership is central to resolving the problems of our country. If the police work together, social development, the NYT, and many other entities, because every NPO is leading an issue of, 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 of femicide, but then we don't have a coherent approach to it, and all of us must work as one, because this is affecting our future. We are, we are in Jordan today, we are in Richard's Bay, we are, we are launching a branch of the NYT. Check the headlines yesterday morning was that a young baby was raped. And you cannot have those headlines uh, being a caricature of our society. That's not what uh, Baba Manelis Mandela and Mama Albertina envisaged to be a country that they fought so hard for. So we need to change our approach, get into a dialogue with young men, and ensure that we are where young people are. That's why the NYC is opening offices everywhere, so that it becomes the centers of also dialogue about issues that are facing society.
Now, Lebato, very quickly, just uh, touching on, speaking of that, um, how do people get information? If young men are listening and they want to be a part of this uh, this initiative by the National Youth Development Agency, um, give us the details of your website, uh, where they can get more information, and where you're setting up all those different uh, offices um, around the country. Yes, Lulu, uh, our uh, website is the NYDA. www.nyda.gov.za We are also available on social media. Uh, On Instagram is nyda underscore insta, nyda underscore insta. On Facebook, uh, National Youth Development Agency. And then uh, on Twitter, nyda rfa, at nyda rfa. They would see that uh, when they enter our website, there's a feed there that says branches. They can then locate where the branches of the NYDA are. But also further, they can call our call center. It's a toll-free. It's 0800-525252. 0800-5252. So that they can then be able to contact our, our call center agents. That will tell them when is the next program speaking to young uh, women, young men, and also when when is the next branch. Because we are launching about 18 branches before the end of this year. Our idea is that uh, by 2020, we must exist in all 54 districts of the country so that young people, uh, the NYT must be in their faces. Opportunities must be right where they are. Lorato, very quickly, just in wrapping up, we have we literally have seconds. What would you say to critics who say the NYDA is toothless and has failed the youth? The NYDA has turned the corner. The NYDA has, has, has a record now of governance, three successive audits, uh, approaching the fourth one. Uh, and I think uh, uh, youth development is everyone's business. Let's give the NYDA a chance because today uh, NYDA beneficiaries are displaying their work here in Richard Bay. Perhaps go visit the site of NYDA because the problem that we've always had, Lugo, uh, is that people will criticize the NYDA not having interacted with the NYDA. So we are reaching to everyone that visit the NYDA pages, visit NYDA branches, and have your first time experience because let's change the narrative. Beneficiaries of the NYDA are there out. Narato, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. It's our pleasure. Thank you. And that's uh, NYDA's Lerato Gambu, spokesperson for South Africa's National Youth Development Agency, joining us on the line. Our economics update up next with Tabi Soluhoko. Thanks, Balungile, and good morning. A general strike in Argentina has brought the country to a standstill, affecting millions of people who were not able to go to work. The unions have called the strike in protest against a 50 billion US dollar loan that President Mauricio Macri agreed with the International Monetary Fund. The BBC's Cathy Watson reports. Tens of thousands of people were left high and dry as they couldn't get, you know, across the city. There were uh, roads blocked as well because this just wasn't just a strike by the General Confederation of Workers. It, it also created demonstrations from activists, people complaining and criticising about this uh, $50 billion loan agreed with the International Monetary Fund just earlier this month. It's caused a huge controversy in the country, but uh, has brought the country as well to a standstill. The Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and the African Tax Administration Forum have renewed their Memorandum of Understanding to June 2023 and will continue 
working together to improve tax systems in Africa. The agreement solidifies their cooperation towards promoting fair and efficient tax systems and administrations in Africa. The African Tax Administration Forum says it has made tremendous strides in its ability to offer concrete and tangible benefits to member administrations. The organization adds its targeted technical assistance in stemming illicit financial flows that erode Africa's tax base in key sectors and has brought them to a standstill. Acacia Mining says its majority shareholder, Barrick Gold, will not provide a new deadline for the completion of tax to end a crippling dispute over taxes in Tanzania after failing to meet a media target to do so. Barrick, which is negotiating on Acacia's behalf with the Tanzanian government, had previously said it would provide an agreement for approval by Acacia's board by the end of June. A barrack which owns 63.9% of Acacia struck a framework deal in October with Tanzania that was supported to resolve the tax dispute. It would see Acacia pay 300 million US dollars to the agreement, hand over a 16% stake in its mines and split economic benefits from operations. The US President Donald Trump has criticized the American motorcycle maker Harley-Davidson, for its decision to move some of its production outside the United States. The company says making bikes for the European market would gradually be transferred to other countries to avoid higher European Union tariffs. Trump tweeted he was surprised that Harley-Davidson, of all companies, was the first to wave the white flag. He's told a rally in South Carolina that he aims for free and fair trade. I want the barriers taken down. I want our farmers to be able to trade. I want to be able to sell cars in there just like they sell cars in here. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.14 Botswana Pula. It's at 9.87 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, the U.S. dollar trades at 3.77 Brazilian real, at 62.90 Russian ruble, and at 67.94 Indian rupee. It's at 6.54 Chinese yuan, and at 13.51 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 75 pence to the British pound, 85 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,264. Platinum, $860 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $74.76 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoko. Our sports update up next was Figile Lingwati. We begin with football news in this hour. Argentina's do or die clash against Nigeria today can be the launch pad for a woeful start of the World Cup, insisted defiant coach George Sampoli after seeing off calls for him to lose his job in the middle of the tournament. Failure to beat the Africans will prolong Lionel Messi's wait to win an international trophy with the added humiliation of bowing out at the group stages without even winning a game. A 3-0 thrashing by Croatia after Argentina opened with a 1-0 draw against Iceland saw calls for Sampoli to be sacked amid reports of player unrest at his tactics and team selection.
But after a tumultuous week, including meetings between the squad, coach, and Argentine Football Association President Claudio Tapia in recent days, Sambaoli tried to put a positive spin on the team's fate. And Cristiano Ronaldo's Portugal in 2010 winner Spain progressed to the World Cup knockout rounds on Monday night of high drama dominated by the VAR decisions after hosting nation Russia and Uruguay also qualified. Spain ended up topping Group B by virtue of goals scored after an injury time strike by Lago Aspas, confirmed by the video assistant referee, rescued a two-all draw against Morocco in Kaliningrad and will take on the host nation in Moscow on Sunday. Portugal, who finished level with Spain on five points, considered a late penalty as Iran drew level at one all and faced a heart-stopping moment as Mediterranean put a shot inches wide, a goal that would have sent the European champions crashing out. And in local football in South Africa, the South African Premiership side, Kaiser Chiefs were very close to securing the services of former Al-Akhli coach Hossam Al-Badri, but lost out when Egyptian side Pyramids FCs came with some huge money bags to change his mind. Without mentioning the name, Chiefs football manager Bobby Mutawung revealed that they had agreed everything with Al-Badri. Mutawung confirmed that they had had their men in the bag, but Saudi money bags swept him away. Last time I said three, they were snatched, so I've got two now. I've got two. North Africa has not been kind to you. Eh? <laughs> not been kind to me. They've been taking, I mean, if you ask the princes, the, the princes who are buying clubs in, 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 in Alakhli's and others, it's been a nightmare. We've had top coaches. One day I'll reveal the names of the coaches we interviewed. And uh, fortunately, they also wish to come back to South Africa and work with us here in the future. But unfortunately, the, the euro pound to, to the rent at the moment is, is playing its strength. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that challenge. One of the challenges, they, they obviously, the rent to a, to, a, to a thing, you know, competition is stiff. But it's we had one coach which we brought, mm. agreed on terms and everything. When he got back home, he was flown in with a private jet by a prince. They offered him, you know, euros that I could not even think of. Mm. I mean, you get somebody to be paid 2.5 million euro net per annum. If you look at our structures in South Africa, that's, that's huge. That's huge. So, but the guys are willing and they want to come to South Africa and work in South Africa. <laughs> El Badri won two Egyptian league titles with Al Ahly and lost the Kev Champions League final to Widat Casablanca last year. He is also the same coach who signed Pagamani Mahlambi from Bidvers Vets last year. In cricket news, the International Cricket Council, the ICC, announced the schedule for the 2018 ICC Women's World 2020 to be held in the West Indies from the 9th to the 24th of November. The 10-team tournament featuring three-time champions Australia, reigning ICC Women's World Cup winners England. India, New Zealand, Pakistan, South Africa, Sri Lanka, and defending champions, the West Indies. Plus two qualifiers will be played across three venues in the Caribbean. The finalists of the ICC Women's World T20 qualifier in the Netherlands from the 7th to the 14th of July will complete the lineup of the November tournament, which is the first stand-alone ICC Women's World 2020 event. The teams participating in the qualifying event are Bangladesh, Ireland, the Netherlands, Papua New Guinea, Scotland, Thailand, Uganda, and the United Arab Emirates. World number one, Rafael Nadal will warm up for next month's Wimbledon Championships by playing two exhibition matches at the Aspal Tennis Classic in Hurlingham this week. The Spaniard who reclaimed the top spot in the ATP rankings after Roger Federer lost to Bonacoric in the Haley Open final at the weekend withdrew from the Queen's Club event earlier this month to recover after winning his 11th French Open title.
That's a sport news this hour. Channel Africa brings you wall-to-wall coverage of the 2018 FIFA World Cup finals in Russia. Visit our dedicated World Cup page on www.channelafrica.org.za for in-depth coverage which includes previews, reviews, analysis, breaking news and podcasts of latest interviews. We will also bring you the very latest news from Russia with our Nigerian correspondent Tony Ubani and the BBC's reporters in our daily hourly sports bulletins and on the Africa at Play sports show on Friday, Saturday and Sunday from 5pm to 6pm Central African time. Channel Africa, your home of the 2018 FIFA World Cup final. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa South Sudan, rival leaders set to meet again this week. South Africa's ruling ANC begins process to formulate elections manifesto and BRICS Young Scientists Forum kicks off in Durban. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band.